This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Warm enough down there in Jackson. Well, it's a little nippy, and it's only going to get nippier. So, <laughs> but that's what happens in November and winter, and we'll remember that uh, summer will come again probably about February. That's true, and uh, we're we're cozy here in the studios here, high atop the uh, Robert Kyer uh, Law Center. Uh, and I'm really happy to welcome uh, Professor Desiree Hensley, who directs our housing clinic. And uh, she has a graduate of Georgetown Law School. She's a published scholar, a great teacher. But she also practices law in her, in her teaching of our students. And so it's a great opportunity for them to learn through doing and helping people while they're doing it. And today we're going to talk about housing. And so... Uh, Professor Hensley, would you tell us a little bit about your background and your work with the housing clinic? Yes. Uh, good morning, Liz. Good morning, Richard. Um, I, uh, like Richard said, have a JD from Georgetown University Law Center. And in 2009, I began teaching here at the University of Mississippi School of Law. I have practiced in the area of housing law since I graduated from law school and passed the bar in the District of Columbia. And the types of cases that I work on for my teaching here at the law school really are any kind of case that is related to someone's housing, protecting their housing, protecting their investment in their real property, uh, discrimination, eviction proceedings, uh, etc. So I take a wide range of cases. I primarily re- represent people in the northern part of the state just because of geographical proximity. Um, but I do take cases throughout the state when I can. And you, uh, in those cases, the students help you uh, and learn through working with real clients. How does that work? If a student in our clinics can practice the law on a limited basis, is that true? Yes, they can. Students who have uh, sufficient credit hours uh, at law school can be sworn in to the limited practice of law, and that allows them to appear on behalf of clients under the direct supervision of a law professor. And under your supervision, they've gotten to do a lot of really great cases and, and had a positive impact on the people of Mississippi. Uh, you know, and you've written about the fact that housing is a civil rights issue. How is that the case? Well, the uh, Fair Housing Act um, is also Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act. That was passed in 1968. And that Civil Rights Act is all about uh, equal access to uh, residential housing, uh, despite your race, your national origin, your sex, your religion, uh, you, whether, you, whether or not you have children, or uh, whether or not you're disabled. 
And so we often think of civil rights cases as those involving equal access to education or voting rights. Um, But the third prong of civil rights really is this right to not be discriminated against in where you live because someone doesn't like the way you look or your faith or um, the fact that you have children, for example. This morning, we're talking about housing with Desiree Hensley, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic. We were lucky enough to have Professor Hensley on our show April 9th of 2019. So if you're enjoying this show, you could go back to listen to that podcast, April 9th, 2019. Our webpage is inlegalterms.mpbonline.org but we would love for our listeners to join in and uh, have ask Professor Hensley a question our number is 1-877-MPB-RING that's 1-877-672-7464 you could also send us an email the address for our show is Legal terms at mpbonline.org. Well, these these questions Liz, are so important uh, when we talk about landlord tenant and, and just uh, housing in general. So always great to have Desiree on. We were talking about it before the show, just that there'll never be an absence of questions about uh, housing law. So that's why this is so important. Um, you know what? When you deal with housing issues, uh, who who could come to the clinic? And, and seek your help? The way that we uh, find and retain clients uh, in the clinic is we have a call-in number, um, which I can provide, and uh, individuals uh, get referred to us by other attorneys uh, all over the state, and people call in. Uh, the first step is they get screened by one of the students who, are ta- who is taking the housing clinic class, And we look to see if it's an issue that uh, I, in particular, have the expertise to assist with. We um, determine that the person um, could not otherwise afford or access those legal services by going out into the private market and hiring a member of the bar. And um, and then we we assess for likelihood of success. We have we do have limited resources. We're a nonprofit uh, law firm within the law school. And so we try to make decisions about who we represent based upon the merit of that claim as well. Yeah, and I think it's important you mentioned the fact that this is not, your clinic doesn't compete with members of the practicing bar. These are cases that they probably wouldn't take because the the clients don't have resources to pay uh, for services. So you're actually doing a great service for people who otherwise would not have representation. Uh, And, uh, I mean, that's really important for our state. Um, Let me ask a little bit. You, uh, You deal sometimes with HUD. What is... HUD, and we hear about HUD, and how does that work in Mississippi? HUD stands for Housing and Urban Development. It's a federal agency, but it's a federal agency that is uh, heavily involved in state uh, operations. And so um, I guess a good way to think of it is HUD is charged with... um, helping individuals who can otherwise not obtain housing have access to housing. And these would be the poorest um, individuals, um, primarily individuals with disabilities who cannot work, 
and the elderly. Those are the, the main people that HUD assists with their rental housing. And so HUD rental housing programs would include uh, what we think of or call public housing, and those are federal grants to uh, a local government to provide cheaper housing for people to live in. It's not free, but it's cheaper. And then HUD also pays for Section 8 vouchers. I think that's how most people call the, what, how most people refer to those today is a Section 8 voucher. And with that, HUD pays directly uh, to the landlord the amount of the rent that the tenant can't afford. And so in those two main ways, HUD supports low-income people who would be homeless but for financial assistance. But HUD also plays a really important role in supporting local governments in that local governments and the state can apply for money from HUD for infrastructure projects to support low-income communities. So if a um, community, for example, needs um, to update its sewer system, uh, which is not an uncommon problem in Mississippi, that community can actually apply for a grant from HUD and get you know, the bulk of the funding from the federal government to update its local infrastructure. And so that's a really powerful investment that the federal government makes in our local communities um, that communities really need to take advantage of if they're not. That's great. I mean, you mentioned you, you would give the uh, the phone number for the clinic. So, and we'll post this, uh, Liz. I think we'll post this on our, our, our website. But would you mind giving that uh, that number? Yeah. Um, if someone wants to call the clinic uh, to ask for legal services, that number is 662-915-3493. I should say that the semester is getting close to ending, and so we are at the phase of the semester where we're not taking very many new cases, but if we can provide the legal service of brief advice um, to help someone figure out what to do uh, next, we will do that right now. Otherwise, we'll sort of be taking new cases again at the end of January in 2020. And That's Professor right. Hensley, you know, you mentioned you're with uh, mostly the North Mississippi. We want to remind our listeners that Mississippi Legal Services and their website is mslegalservices.org. They can assist uh, the state with housing information. Their website talks about discrimination and sexual harassment, foreclosure prevention, landlord and tenant issues, mobile homes and manufactured homes, Section 8, right to privacy, and other housing issues. We'll have their information on our website also. It's a statewide phone number, and then they direct you to the area that uh, serves your county. Their phone number is one 800 Four nine eight one eight zero four. Once again, we'll have that all that information on our website. Right now, we're going to continue our discussion of housing laws after our break. So, if you have a question about laws concerning landlord tenants or security deposits, or maybe you feel there has been some discrimination and you want to know what the laws are, please call in. Our number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Do you know who the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development is and where they were last month? We'll tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And we want to let our listeners know that on October 1st, Secretary Ben Carson, on behalf of the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council, announced a new website that will serve as a hub of information for the array of audiences that work with the Opportunity Zones initiatives that's through HUD. And that announcement was made in Jackson, Mississippi. And this morning, we're talking about housing and the housing clinic that Professor Desiree Hensley, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic, runs at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And, uh, and Liz, we have great clinics here, but Desiree was really the first tenure-track faculty member that we hired. She's tenured uh, to, to run our clinics. A lot of schools do not uh, tenure their, their clinical faculty, but we're proud to do that here, and we're really proud of the work of our clinics. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Desiree deals with is the uh, landlord-tenant law, and we have, we have lots of renters in our community, but lots of renters throughout Mississippi. So if, if my landlord wants to evict me, what do they have to do? Uh, it depends on the reason for the eviction. If uh, your landlord wants to evict you because you have not paid your rent or you're late in paying your rent, uh, the Mississippi Residential Landlord Tenant Act requires the landlord to provide you with three days written notice that your rent is late and that if you don't pay by the end of that three days, then the landlord will take you to court for eviction. If you are being evicted, the landlord wants to evict you for some other breach of lease, like you have a pet that you're not supposed to have under your lease, or someone moves into the home that's not on the lease, um, or any number of other uh, complaints that the landlord might have about you, uh, the landlord's supposed to give you 14 days written notice that you need to fix that problem or vacate. And if you haven't fixed it within 14 days, then the landlord can, and you haven't vacated, then the landlord can take you to court and get an eviction judgment against you. So it's, you know, let's say I think the landlord's wrong. Can I fight that eviction judgment? If, uh, and is that something that, that the clinic would help with? Yes, of course. We um, do a lot of eviction defense. It's not the only thing we do. But uh, I would say that probably a third of our cases are eviction defense cases. And um, often tenants have a defense. And if they don't have a legal advice or assistance, they're not necessarily going to, going to know how they can uh, argue against the eviction. And so it sounds simple. Um, you haven't paid the rent, and therefore you can be evicted. But there are defenses to non-payment of rent. So, for example, Mississippi has a, uh, a law that's called the Implied Warranty of Habitability that our Supreme Court has recognized, and that law requires landlords to keep homes in a habitable condition. And if they're not kept in a habitable condition, the tenant has the right to say, well, then I shouldn't have to pay so much rent. I should pay less rent because I bargained for a place that had working air, working air conditioning, for example. 
and that air conditioning has been broken, and so I shouldn't have to pay $900 a month for rent during that time period. And so that would be a defense, you could argue, that the landlord's not entitled to $900. Maybe the landlord's entitled to $500 because you were without air conditioning. But without the advice of an attorney, at least, most tenants are not going to know how to make those arguments in court. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, this is an area, it seems like, where the landlord has most of the power uh, and the tenant has very little, and that's why having access to an attorney can help as an advocate. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I'm just going to go to something I know my, my two daughters have dealt with uh, with apartments, and that is uh, they left and they got noticed that something was being withheld from their security deposit uh, without any notice really about why money was being held from their security deposit. I don't think that's an unusual thing that happens. So what, what are landlords supposed to do uh, in regards to security deposits? Well, the security deposit is... Um the property of the tenant, and it's paid to the landlord uh, to be held in trust during the tenancy to compensate the landlord for breaches of the lease that occur um, that have not been paid for during the tenancy. So when the landlord's holding the tenant's security deposit and the tenant vacates, like in that situation, the landlord is entitled to keep uh, and a, a portion of the security deposit for unpaid rent um, and to pay back the landlord for making repairs to the property um, that the tenant uh, should not have um, left unrepaired. And so the security deposit, though, is not supposed to be used uh, to pay back the landlord for the tenant's basic use of the property. If someone lives in a rental house or apartment, they live in it, and they're going to um, cause some wear and tear. There's, it's impossible for someone to live in a home and there not be the evidence that that home has been used. And so tenants are not supposed to have to pay for the landlord um, spiffing up a place so that it doesn't look like there's been reasonable wear and tear after the tenant has left. But a lot of landlords keep that money uh, in order to make the apartment ready for the next person. And, and I see that all the time. And uh, I always try to argue that the tenant does not have to pay from their security deposit for the landlord to make the apartment ready for the next person. Um, but unfortunately, there's, there's no real case law in Mississippi on that. And so at this point, it's, it's just an argument. There is a statute on point that says that the landlord should only keep the security deposit to, for the payment of rent that wasn't paid and to fix repairs that are not simply reasonable wear and tear. If you have a question about what are some of the laws concerning renters or if you're a, uh, a landlord and you have a question about what the laws are, we would love to add you to our conversation with a, a professor of law and the director of the housing clinic, Desiree Hensley, along with Professor Richard Gershon. You can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one Eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And we do have a caller. We've got Star, who's called in from Tupelo. Thanks for calling in. Go ahead. 
Hey, thanks for the call. Uh, I was wondering, as a renter, how often can a landlord come in and check the place out? Um, I guess it depends. Uh, your lease probably reserves the right for the landlord to come in um, with a certain amount of notice. You would have to look at your lease to see what that says. Uh, if you have an oral lease agreement, which is possible, then that may be completely unclear and you don't have a lease that would govern that. Um, I can tell you that state law doesn't help too much with that issue. There's nothing on point that limits a landlord's ability to um, check the apartment um, other than that the tenant has to provide reasonable access to the owner to come in and make repairs, for example. You're not going to be able to deny the owner entry in order to maintain or repair the unit. That said, um, a a lease, um, a rental, is a transfer of certain rights from the landlord to the tenant. And the main right that is transferred is the right of possession. And when the landlord does that, the landlord is making a promise to not interfere with the tenant's sort of peaceful enjoyment of that property. And so if a landlord is constantly coming into the unit without providing a reasonable amount of notice and for an actual reason, um, I think that the tenant has an argument that the landlord is breaching the lease by uh, interfering with the tenant's ability to really enjoy that lease. Now, if the landlord has a good reason, there's something broken, the tenant has requested a repair, and the landlord provides a reasonable amount of notice, I would say for a non-emergency repair that requires entry, you know, that's going to be probably 24 hours notice. For an emergency, it's going to be much shorter. But just random visits by the landlord and they're entering your apartment would not, would I think be a breach of the lease and not legal. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And right. it seems like, you know, one thing is, hey, try to get a lease in writing if we can, because, I mean, a lease is just a set of instructions. That's all really any written document is. And then read it and read, you know, what your rights are, because uh, as much as I, I mean, I'm the person who always click, I agree on, the, on my iPad, even though I don't read, you know, all that licensing agreement that I'm agreeing to. If it's something like your lease, you probably probably should read it. Yeah, I think that uh, leases are, uh, in Mississippi in any event, generally specifically enforced, meaning usually it's the justice court who determines uh, rights under the lease. Um, The justice court judge is very likely to just look at what the words on the lease say, and um, that's not necessarily the only uh, relevant information the judge should look at. There's other state law that affects uh, the landlord-tenant relationship that goes beyond the lease, but it's very, very likely in Mississippi that that a written lease is going to be the law of of that particular case. Um, And so I do think it's important, number one, if you're offered a lease, to read it and understand it, uh, specifically as regards your security deposit and any additional fees that will be charged. and, and other issues, like can other people live there? Can you sublease? Can you have a pet? Uh, promises like that, because the lease, the lease is instructions, but it's also a two-way promise. It's a promise by the tenant to act a certain way, and it's a promise by the landlord to act a certain way. And so it is important to read it. Well, and uh, we've got uh, um, 
we got a call. But before we, before we get to the call, Liz, can I do this, this email? Because it relates sure. to, uh, yeah, I think what, what uh, Professor Hensley was just talking about. We got an email from Julie in Memphis, and she said her son had a one-year lease, but uh, her, his roommate moved out after four months. And the landlord said to the son, you can't get out of the lease. You've got to continue to pay the lease. I mean, what, what kind of rights do you have in that situation where somebody else breaches the lease and you haven't? It depends. Uh, I'm not barred to practice law in Tennessee, and so this will not be Tennessee-specific law um, that I'm mentioning. This will just be sort of general landlord-tenant law. But um, if there's one lease agreement and both the son and the son's friend are the uh, lessees on that lease, then they are both liable for the full amount of the lease even if one leaves. And the fact that one has left would not eliminate the one who remains from liability under that lease. Now, um, in most situations when someone's roommate leaves and, and you and your roommate are on one lease together, the remaining roommate will make an effort to sublet the other roommate's room so that you're not in a financially precarious situation. If if the remaining roommate can do that, then that's probably what should be done. Um, but some leases refuse the right to sublease without permission of the landlord. And so it can actually be complicated. That's a situation when the tenant, the remaining roommate, the son in this case, really needs to read the lease and see what it says about subletting. Um, because doing that without following the lease could be a breach of lease. But, but that's absolutely right. If, if two lessors, if two people are on the same lease together, they're both equally liable for the whole, not just for half. If they have two separate lease agreements, then her son is not responsible for the other lease agreement. Right. And I know in some cases now in Oxford, some of the uh, apartments that rent to college students will have, even if they're four students renting an apartment, each one will basically lease their own room. And That's so right. they're only responsible for their own room, which is kind of a nice setup. But um, I think I understand, Liz, we have to take a break. We do. It's time for us to take a break. We're talking with Desiree Hensley, a professor of law at the University of Mississippi School of Law and director of their housing clinic. So if you have a question about housing, about leases, security deposits, discrimination, this is the time to call in to find out what the law is. Our number is one 877 mpb ring. That's one 1- 877-672-7464 for your questions. You could also send us an email. The address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We were talking about evictions earlier, so how common are evictions in Mississippi? We'll tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are a lot of different podcasting platforms. I happen to use Podcast Addict. Some people use Spotify. You download it to your phone. If you have an Apple phone, you already have one on your phone. 
touch the plus that takes you to the page to search for podcasts. Then type in In Legal Terms in the search area. It'll bring up our show. You touch the photo. You could also hit subscribe to be notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about housing with our guest, Desiree Hensley, from the University of Mississippi School of Law. She's the director of their housing clinic. And according to Eviction Lab in Mississippi, there are 34 evictions per day at a 9% eviction rate, and that's more than one and a half times the U.S. average. We have a couple of phone calls to get to. Let's go to Tina, who's called in to Hernan- from Hernando. Tina, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Yeah, um, we Oh, t- Tina, we didn't we didn't hear you. Start again, please. Oh, okay. Do I need to talk louder? I'm not near a radio. Oh no, you're you're good. Just go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, yes, ma'am. I was uh, listening to the program, and I happened to have a meeting with my apartment office today, and I don't seem to be able to get any information on why I need to sign um, three leases in the same year. I signed one in December of this year, which is a, which was the first renewal. I moved in two years ago. This December, this last December, I signed a new lease. Um, I had to come in in February and do it again, and I didn't understand. They haven't given me a copy of that one. Um, um, I've reported it to the USDA, which does inspections here. Um, I don't seem to be able to get a hold of them before this meeting that I have today. So I'm a little bit confused um, as to why the meeting today is about signing another lease. They said something about they have 90 days um, before the date of the lease being up and completed. They they said they have 90 days to get the information. And before, whenever I would um, renew a lease, I would just bring all that information in on the day it was expired. So not only if I had to sign two leases, and which one is legal? Is the one in December legal or is the one in February legal? And do I have a year from that date before I have to sign another one? Tina, I think that your legal question uh, might be one that requires uh, me to uh, get more information. I can't answer why your landlord is asking you to sign so many leases in such a short amount of time without well, knowing more. It sounds well, I mean, to me, you, um, you mentioned can you answer, that, is it, is it okay is to ask that, that maybe you live in some kind of uh, housing where you have a, a rent subsidy. Is that possible? There's no rent subsidies. I, I am on disability, and um, I have the income that supports this apartment, if okay. that's what you're asking. Well, I was asking that because sometimes if you um, are living in a unit that has a subsidy, the landlord will have to verify your income on an annual basis to make sure that you're eligible. Is that what they're right. asking you to do? On an, annual, on an annual basis, ma'am, but this is the third time in, in one year. I cannot say without more information. It's it's generally a one-year uh, certification, and um, 
sometimes, uh, of course, if you have a change in income, whether an increase or a decrease, you have to report that right away um, to the um, landlord no, so that the no or the it, amount it of rent being paid can be adjusted. Um, but usually it would be you as the tenant who initiates that change. That's all I can tell you without knowing more. Your, your lease that you signed in February, you should be able to look at the face of that lease and see when it expires. They are typically for a year. Uh, it could be that for some reason they had you sign a new lease that ends on December 31st, and just for administrative reasons, they're trying to get uh, their leasing up done prior to the end of the fiscal year or the calendar year. With all due respect, ma'am, I, you know, I just, it's kind of a yes or no question. Can they request information? I mean, can they sign a lease 30 to 90 days before the lease is up? Can they request information 90 days before my lease is up on paper? That would be yes or no, please. Well, I'm afraid I can't provide you with a yes or no response without knowing more, but I can tell you generally that they can ask you for whatever information they want, but whether or not you're legally obligated to provide it is a different question that I can't answer without having the lease agreement. Tina, just from my personal experience, uh, I don't know if you if you have a, a cell phone or if you have a camera uh, available, um, if you're not if you don't think they'll provide you with a copy of the lease, uh, you know, snap a picture of it or, or bring a friend who does have a camera so you can uh, have a picture of it. Then you'll at least have a record of it uh, when you leave the, the building. All right. Thank, Tino, thank you so much. We appreciate you for calling in. Let's now go to Jesse, who's calling in from Jackson. Jesse, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead, please. Um, hi. Yes. So I uh, moved out of a home this year um, where the security deposit was equal to a month's rent, so it was $1,600. Um, and then there was also two pet deposits. So the total deposit that we made that we paid equaled 2600 um, When we moved out, our landlord kept about like eighteen to 1900 of that and gave us kind of a brief explanation of why she kept the money. But she didn't give us any... Does she legally have to provide us with like receipts of the work done? No. The Mississippi law requires the landlord to provide you with a written accounting of the reason why your security deposit was not returned. Um, that has to be provided within 45 days of um, you asking for it. And so there does have to be a writing, and that writing needs to say exactly why your deposits were kept by the landlord. But it doesn't require any proof that that work was actually done or um, that they actually spent that money. Oh. Did you um, receive a written statement from the landlord? We did receive a written statement from the landlord, but there were some things like um, where she charged us for a, a flower garden outside of a window, like to replant and replace the flower garden, where there never were any flowers. 
at any point <laughs> in any time that we lived there. So, I mean, there were things that we wanted, like we were, we had, we wanted a more explanation or we were challenging, but I mean, is it? Yeah, it's very hard to challenge these landlord decisions. It's, it's almost impossible for tenants to do it. Um, these are cases that I do take in the clinic where I challenge the landlord's assertion that they were entitled to keep uh, either the whole security deposit or part of the security deposit. And I ask for that kind of information when I challenge it. The okay. Mississippi law does say that tenants have a right to get back their security deposit and that the landlord can be penalized a $200 penalty for improperly keeping it. But um, even in a case like yours where your deposits were, you know, a lot of money, it's very hard to find an attorney who uh, thinks it's worth their while to take your case to court. And that $200 penalty that can be assessed to the landlord doesn't really impact the landlord enough on a regular basis to, to create an incentive for the landlord to just return your money to you. Um, but if you can find an attorney to help you you know, argue with the landlord over the validity of the landlord keeping the money for those kinds of reasons, you could perhaps negotiate a solution. Okay. And and um, if, if you are in North Mississippi or if you're in Oxford or a student at the University of Mississippi, my clinic does assist a lot of students in particular who run into these kind of problems um, while they're here in Oxford. So Thank you can feel free to call our call-in number and get some assistance with that or ask for assistance. Thank you, Jesse. We appreciate you calling in and being part of our show. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions, you're welcome to call in. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You could also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking housing today, security deposit, leases, landlord, tenants, discrimination, those kinds of questions. If you want to know what the law is, we'd like for you to be a part of our show. If you're interested in reading more information about housing from the federal government, where can you go? We'll tell you after the break. This is in legal terms. On MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show. In Legal Terms mpbonline.org it's also available on the MPB public media app as are all our local shows and as a podcast I'm Liz Gill I'm with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law with our guest Desiree Hensley Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic at the University of Mississippi School of Law and to remind everyone if you're in North Mississippi and you would like to take advantage of the housing Clinic. Their phone number is 
888-344-3493. And that information will be on the web page for this show and on the podcast page. And I mentioned where uh, could you go to get some more information. Well, HUD, the Housing and Urban Development website, has a frequently asked questions section. It's hud.gov slash FAQs. We have a caller calling. Let's go to Jackson. And Evelyn has called in. Thanks for calling in in legal terms, Evelyn. Go ahead. So I have some questions regarding uh, getting back a security deposit and what is considered normal wear and tear. Uh, If there's a plumbing issue that wasn't reported to the landlord, say a stopped up sink uh, or something of that nature, uh, can something be withheld from the security deposit for that? If uh, a lot of smoking was done in the house and the house has to be professionally aired and then painted, is that an issue? And can one put, can a landlord put reasonably put in a lease that there should be no smoking in the house? Uh, as to the smoking uh, prohibition in the lease, there is absolutely no reason that a landlord um, cannot prohibit smoking in the house. Um, and in fact, I think if your lease did not prohibit that and the person therefore smoked in the house um, without breaching the lease, I don't think that, the, that you can charge the tenant for there being smoke and smoke and smoke-related um, discoloration. That's just part of you know, reasonable wear and tear for a smoker. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if your lease, which you can do in the future, prohibits smoking inside, you're absolutely allowed to do that. I can't think of any rationale that would um, allow or prohibit the, the owner of the property or the landlord from prohibiting smoking. That's similar to prohibiting pets. You just don't want that kind of wear and tear or the you know dander or the smoke uh, Uh, left in the unit when they're gone. So I think that's perfectly legal to do that. And you should do that if you don't want that form of reasonable wear and tear in the unit. Um, As to the clogged up sink, um, the statute governing security deposits is clear that the landlord can keep the security deposit for damage done by the tenant. So if the sink is stopped up, because of something that the tenant did or didn't do that the tenant should have done. Um, so, for example, if you know the tenant poured a bunch of grease down the drain and that stopped up the drain, it might be hard to demonstrate, but there's, there's things that tenants can do that would damage plumbing. Um, then that would be a legitimate um, item to withhold from the security deposit. If the tenant was in no way negligent and then the sink just it wasn't working due to no fault of the tenant's own, that would not be an appropriate item to withhold from the security deposit. The question about telling the landlord during the lease term, unless that stopped-up sink has damaged some other part of the property, that wouldn't justify withholding the security deposit. If, on the other hand, a stopped-up sink led to leaking under the sink and that damaged the materials under the sink, like the wood floor of the sink, that would be something that you could complain about and keep the security deposit for. But if they just didn't complain about the sink not working um, and, but did not actually damage the sink, then then you would not be able to keep that from the security deposit. Could you talk a little bit about other legitimate reasons a landlord would consider it beyond wear and tear so that people can kind of get a gauge of what you know is and is not? 
to sure. maybe some of your experiences. Yeah. Um, so a good example of um, damage that would go beyond reasonable wear and tear would be like a burn in the carpet. So uh, evidence of foot traffic in the carpet or just basic scuffs on molding um, around the carpet, that would just be regular wear and tear. You can't help but um, get some foot traffic evidence on the carpet from living there, and and that's what baseboards are for, is to, to protect the wall from scuffs. Now, if there are cigarette burns or iron burns, pet stains on the carpet, those are things that the tenant uh, did that caused damage to the uh, carpet that it wouldn't happen uh, just from living there. That, that, that is in addition to reasonable wear and tear. So that's one example. Um, in terms of, say, damages to walls, if, um, <clears throat> if the tenant moves into a unit and the walls have been recently patched and painted, there are no nail holes, um, and the tenant leaves a bunch of marks on the walls uh, relating to hanging things on the walls, and those marks are not repaired by the tenant before they go, that repair of those marks that were not pre-existing could be um, beyond reasonable wear and tear. Um, Certainly damage to drywall that results from, like, you know, rough housing, I mean, believe it or not, you know, people punch walls and leave holes in walls. Things like that would go beyond reasonable wear and tear. But basic discoloration relating to, say, just cooking, um, when you cook, uh, you know, smoke or grease uh, ends up in your kitchen, that's just reasonable wear and tear. You're allowed to use your kitchen if you're a tenant. But let's say damage from a... um, of a fire that was the result of the tenant being negligent, um, that could rise above reasonable wear and tear, and that smoke damage could be something that would be taken out of a security deposit. Do you have any specific examples? No, I just wanted kind of a general discussion of that, um, but I, I think you've covered it, and I uh, appreciate your help. You're welcome. I think one thing to keep in mind is if you imagine yourself as the tenant and um, living there as a reasonable person and taking care of the place like a reasonable person, what kind of damage goes beyond just what happens in the normal course of occupying a home and what is truly damage that goes beyond just normal everyday living? Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, and Professor Hensley, we have, we have, you have two minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, this is quick. This has gone by quickly, and uh, we appreciate uh, all that uh, Desiree has, has talked about. Quickly, I know we don't have time, but what about discrimination? How, I mean, that seems like a serious thing. How do you deal with housing discrimination? Well, uh, discrimination um, can actually be the basis of eviction, and uh, we do have cases that come in where uh, someone is, is being evicted in justice court, which is our small claims court, and... The reason for that has to do with um, they complained about um, the conditions, and so it would be a retaliatory eviction based upon their complaining about the conditions, or because they have a pet, and that pet would violate a pet policy, but it's a service animal or an assistance animal. And so they're being evicted for having a pet, but then that's discrimination against them because of their disability. And so um, it often comes up in eviction-related proceedings, um, discrimination does. 
figuring out how to um, manage those evictions when our small claims courts don't really have the capacity and the understanding of the law to do that makes those those cases sort of difficult to manage. But ideally, we get those cases into a federal court as soon as possible after we after we learn about them. Yeah, those seem like they, they do require a little bit more lawyering than maybe the, the, the deposit return and things like that. They do. They do. Because you're, you're combining, you know, state law, the contract, and then a pretty complicated federal statute to try to figure out whose rights, um, it, well, who has rights and then who has remedies. Well, this has been great. I mean, I really hope, hope you'll come back again because we, I know we get more questions. We really had a lot more to talk about. And, and uh, unfortunately, Liz, I think we're about out of time. We are. And thank you so much, uh, Professor Hensley. Can remind us again of the phone number of the clinic for North Mississippians or for students at the University of Mississippi in Oxford? Yeah, the number is 662-915-915. 3493. And let me just say, while we focus on North Mississippi, we do actually serve the entire state. Um, those cases are a little harder for us to take, but um, we do serve beyond North Mississippi as well. Fantastic. And that Mississippi Legal Services phone number, their uh, 800 number for statewide intake is 1 800 498 14104 So thank you Professor Hensley, thank you Professor Richard Gershon, thank you Jay White and Michelle McAdoo for helping us out here in Jackson. I'm Liz Gill and up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, relatively speaking, but we hope you'll come back again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for in legal terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.